Take out your Bibles, turn back to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking at verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. 982 in the Pew Bible. The main idea of the passage before us is not difficult to figure out. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Have you learned that? To open again this morning with a question, be considering as we work through this passage, be meditating on the simple question, am I content? Are you content? Or here's a different and more uncomfortable way to come at it. What do you daydream about? Everyone daydreams. We're only 30 seconds in and some of you are already daydreaming. Uh, But you're back now that you heard the word daydream. Daydreaming is one of those things that studies confirm that everyone does, but no one wants to admit that they do. So unless you're the one person who doesn't, ask yourself, what do you tend to daydream about? That will, in all likelihood, reveal what you are discontent about. Your daydreams reveal your discontentment. I'll share a somewhat safe one, uh, still problematic though, and not a good one for a rainy day. I didn't know it was going to be rainy when I wrote this. If I'm being honest, sometimes I daydream about this room being filled to overflowing, right? It's just uh, all to the glory of God, of course, Uh, the pews. Actually, for you actually having to sit close to each other as if you actually liked each other. Right? The balcony completely full, standing in the back, people crowding in, trying to hear, just to hear a little bit of the word uh, from the foyer. The problem's so bad that we should probably go to two services, but the word church kind of means assembly, so maybe it's unbiblical to have two services. Um, and since I'm so humble, we'll just plant churches. We'll plant one in Sunnyside, Astoria, Long Island City. We'll cross the East River to Manhattan. Probably not Brooklyn because they think they're better than us. Um, But they'll just be this wild ministerial success that will result in a book deal and the gospel advance all over the city. All to the glory of God, of course. Daydreams are revealing. My seemingly harmless daydream about big numbers reveal a sinful discontentment with small numbers. It's ironic and providential that it is raining today because raining always means smaller numbers in churches. My discontentment and maybe desire to write a book maybe reveals my discontentment with not being known or not being significant or not this, that, or the other. The things that you daydream about reveal what you are most discontent about. So are you content? And what are your daydreams say about that? Paul has just told the Philippians in 4.4 to rejoice. Again, he says, rejoice. And now he opens up our passage in 4.10 with the last use of the verb rejoice in the whole book. Number 11 out of 11, verse 4, hey, you all rejoice. Verse 10, by the way, I rejoiced greatly. Once again, Paul is giving us an example. He's living out for us the very thing that he has commanded of us. Rejoice, I rejoiced. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Verse 11, let me show you how I'm not anxious about anything, but content in everything. We, all of us, somewhat struggle with contentment. Maybe you are sitting here this morning very discontent with your lot in life, which means, as we'll see, very discontent with God. Well, good news from our passage, contentment 
can be learned. Contentment is actually possible. Contentment is what God wants for all of his children. And so our goal this morning is pretty simple. My purpose in this sermon is to help you understand the true nature of Christian contentment, to encourage you that it's possible, and then to motivate you by the grace of God to pursue it. How? It's by God's word. It's with these Words. So we're going to do three things. We're going to simply look first at the definition of contentment. You cannot be content if you don't know what it is. Then we're going to look at the commandment of contentment. I want to make it clear that, that Christianity is contentment. Right? This is something that is required and expected uh, of all of us. It's the duty of all Christians. And then we'll get more practical at the end and look at the secret of contentment. Definition, commandment, secret. Are you content? Let's read God's word and then ask God to help us. It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I will read it for you if you want to follow along in your copy of the scriptures. This is what God wants to say to you today. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Bow with me and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, help us now, we ask. There are various levels of contentment and discontentment in this room this morning. Father, I ask that you would minister your word to each and every one of us. Father, many of us are frustrated with the various circumstances that we are facing. Father, help us by your word to learn the secret of finding contentment in all circumstances, the secret of finding uh, contentment in you. Father, create this in me, uh, create this in every single one of us. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Father, help us to find uh, great joy in him uh, through what it is uh, that we learn uh, today. Help the preaching of your word. Father, help the hearing of your word. We ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, let's first define our terms. Uh, let's skip verse 10 for a minute, and uh, that'll, we'll begin with the second half of verse 11, because here's kind of the main idea. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So what then does it mean to be content? Well, let's start with the Greek word that Paul uses because it's a fascinating word that's full of baggage and history. Uh, the word is um, autocase, autarcase. I can't pronounce it very well, but it's a compound word. And maybe you can recognize the first part. It's auto. A number of you drove here this morning in automobiles. Why do we call cars autos? Well, the word literally means self-moving or self-mobile. That makes sense. And be thankful that that's what we call them. Because at the beginning of the car, they debated all kinds of words like hippomobile. A hippo means horse, hippomobile, or autowain. Wain being an old word for wagon. Those are terrible names. We got automobile, self Moving, it makes sense. It moves itself. Auto means self. That's the first part of the Greek word that Paul uses. The second part is the Greek word archaeo, which literally means sufficient or satisfied. 
So when Paul describes whatever it is that he has learned in verse 11, he describes it as self-sufficiency. It literally says, I have learned in whatever situation that I am to be self-sufficient. And that hopefully sounds a little bit odd to our grace-soaked ears. And it gets even more odd because this isn't just some random word that Paul has selected. This word was loaded with cultural baggage because self-sufficiency, autocase, was the major underlying principle of the school of thought called Stoicism. And Stoicism was an important Greek school of philosophy at the time that Paul is writing this letter. We use the word Stoic today to generally mean calm or without emotion. Uh, one of the greatest and coolest people I've ever known uh, was a guy named Rickman Logan. We were on the same hall junior year, and then we got to live together uh, senior year. He, he's, I don't know if this is an official record, but he holds the world record for the most points scored in a single basketball game, but 652 points. Uh, it was a marathon two-day game. They just played straight. We lost to Duke, uh, but Rickman scored 652 points. He's an awesome guy. He goes to my brother's church now. But his AOL Instant Messenger name, you guys remember AOL Instant Messenger, if you were, grew up in the 90s like I did, um, his name was Stoic Ice. Right? That was his tag name, Stoic Ice, because he was just really chill, and he was really calm, and just a kind, glad guy. Nothing bothered him. Uh, nothing upset him. He was Stoic. Best basketball player I've ever known. Also, went to bed every single night with his J's on. He had Michael Jordans, a ton of them. Went to bed with him still on, and he fell asleep in front of the movie Gladiator every single night that I knew him. I don't think he still does it now that he's married, um, but this is what he did in college. Um, and if you have seen the movie Gladiator, it came out in 2000, it won Best Picture. It was the first rated R movie my parents let me go see. Um, with my older brother, who I looked up to. And so this was a really cool experience. But the emperor in the movie Gladiator was this super wise old guy, and his name was Marcus Aurelius. He was played by the great Richard Harris, who also played Dumbledore, uh, so pretty cool guy. Uh, the story Gladiator is largely fictional, but Marcus Aurelius was a real Roman emperor in the second century, and he is one of the key figures in this school of thought that is called Stoicism. He was this great philosopher king, and he wrote this book called The Meditations, which is considered one of the greatest works of philosophy in all of history. So here is this Roman emperor, the, this kind of the, the main guy people think of when they think of Stoicism, and here's what he writes in his book, Meditations, 1,800 years ago, so about 100 years after Paul. He writes, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. That's the key underlying idea of Stoicism. You control your mind. The world is governed and controlled by Logos, capital R, reason. Again, John takes that idea in John 1.1 1, 1 and calls Jesus the, the Logos. But since the world is governed and ordered by reason, you can order and govern yourself and your life by reason. So Stoicism was this system of self-sufficient, benevolent calm in which you could be so in control and so at peace that you are unaffected by things like poverty and pain and, and the suffering of this life. Later on, Aurelius writes, these are the characteristics of the rational, successful soul. Self-awareness, self-examination, and self-determination. Determination. Self, 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 
sufficiency. That's the core idea of Stoicism. And that's the word Paul takes and uses in verse 11. That's interesting. Maybe it's just to me I'm now realizing right now. But this is really important because that's the context in which Paul is writing this. He takes one of the culture's words, a word that has all kinds of baggage that people would have understand a specific way, and he explains what it is that he has learned here with that word. So what in the world can it mean that Paul has learned to be self-sufficient? Well, we know he obviously can't and does not mean the same thing that the Stoics mean. So what he's doing is he's taking their idea and he's, he's improving on it. He's taking something that people would have been familiar with and then he's tweaking it to explain what it actually is. For now, since maybe the word sufficient could be confusing, let's start with the word satisfaction. That's what contentment is. Contentment is satisfaction. The Rolling Stones sang in 1965, I can't get no satisfaction. Oh, no, no, no. Hey, hey, hey. Really good lyrics there. Um, that's what I say. Paul wrote in 61, 1900 years earlier, I have learned the secret of satisfaction. So it's possible. That's what contentment is. Satisfaction. But I want to leave it there for now. I want to let the weird stoic stuff simmer for a while. Self-sufficiency. That's strange. Well, let's come back and we're going to flesh out our definition in our last point. But we start with just the basic idea that contentment is satisfaction. So for now, the question is, are you satisfied? That's what contentment is. And that's an important question because of point number two, the commandment of contentment. And I hope that this point seems a little bit out of place. We preach expositionally, which means that our preaching is supposed to expose the text. Our ideas are supposed to come from the text. We're constrained by the word of God. So I want you to notice that there is, in fact, no command in this text. Remember our grammar. Uh, verbs have mood. The mood of a verb is how the verb is intended to be understood. Commands are always in the imperative mood. But we have zero imperatives in our text. It's all indicative. The mood of description. The mood that states fact. The mood that tells us what is true. And that's interesting because there have just been just a litany of imperatives leading up to this verse. 4.1, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 3, help these women. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Verse 5, let your reason, reasonableness be known. Verse 6, do not be anxious. Verse 6, let your requests be made known. Verse 8, think about these things. Verse 9, practice these things. There are nine commands, nine imperatives in nine verses. But then all of a sudden... No more imperatives. There is no commandment, be content, be satisfied in this passage. So that raises a question. Am I, in fact, as a Christian, required, uh, commanded to be content? Well, yes. Yes, you are. Where? What's well, actually in the 10th commandment. Let's consider the 10th commandment for a moment. Page uh, 61, if you want to look at it. Exodus 20, verse 17, page 61. The 10th commandment doesn't get nearly enough attention. 
As you're looking at it, did you know, by the way, that Catholics have a different Ten Commandments? It's very confusing. Uh, the Catholic Church shoves Commandment 1 and 2 together. Right? So you shall have no other gods, and you shall have no carved images. That's number one. Well, since those two become one, they have to do something to come up with the number 10, the 10 words. And so they do that uh, by splitting up number 10. They make 10 into 2. Listen to Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So since Rome takes their list of the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy 5, the order's different in Deuteronomy 5, uh, the Catholic Ninth Commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and the Catholic Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff, basically. So it's two separate things. I think that's strange and confusing, and it's incorrect. Uh, the Tenth Commandment is the whole thing. You shall not covet wife, house, stuff, anything. It's a comprehensive commandment against coveting. And we pay this one little attention, and we probably sort of even wonder, well, why it's there, right? We get don't murder, uh, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Those are bad. Okay, don't do those things. I, I get it. But don't covet. What's the big deal? Well, it's actually a huge deal. And it's the last commandment on purpose. The tenth is the capstone commandment. It is the summary commandment. The whole thing is summarized in this tenth commandment, if you think about it. Remember that Jesus summarizes the whole law. Love God, love neighbor. That's the whole thing. Well, it's impossible to do either of those if you are coveting. If you are sinfully desiring that which is not yours and that which you do not have, you can't love God and you can't love your neighbor. And so that would then make coveting, in some sense, the root of all other sins. And if you commit the outward act of adultery, you have first committed the sinful action of desiring that which is not yours. The coveting leads to the adultery. The Tenth Commandment already makes clear what Jesus has to clarify in the Sermon on the Mount. That the law is concerned not just with our external actions, but with our heart. And coveting clarifies this. I consider how Paul explains the use of the law in Romans 7. Is there something wrong with the law? Is the law, law sin? Verse 7, he says, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Why does he pick that one? To explain the use of the law. Because it's the last one. It's the summary law. He picks coveting to summarize the rest of them. And in Colossians 3.5, Paul calls covetousness idolatry. Which makes coveting, uh, it, it makes your desires, your coveting, it makes that thing into a god. Uh, breaking the first commandment. Right? Your, your desires all of a sudden become a God. Your desires say, I must have this thing to be happy. I cannot live without this thing. I so desire it that I will not be content until I have it. So I will constantly think about it, meditate about it, daydream about it, and do whatever I have to to get that thing. Coveting is idolatry, which leads to the breaking of all the other commandments. Listen to questions 80 and 81 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. They're about the 10th commandment. Question 80 says, what is required in the 10th commandment? Says the 10th commandment requires full contentment. 
with our own condition. 81, what is forbidden in the 10th commandment? The 10th commandment forbids all discontentment with our own estate. You see, the 10th commandment is about contentment. It commands contentment and it forbids discontentment. Coveting is the opposite of contentment. So Christian, right there in the 10th commandment, you are commanded by God to be content. And so when Paul here says that he has learned in whatever situation he is to be content, your response cannot be, hey, great job, Paul. That's nice for you. But you have no idea how bad my circumstances are. You don't know my spouse or my boss or my debt or my sickness or whatever it is. And we need to be careful here with that because you need to remember who you're talking to. Remember that Paul is writing this letter from prison. He is chained to Roman Guards, remember 2 Corinthians 11 and Paul's description of his life after he met Christ. Right? No prosperity gospel here. He starts off with countless beatings. So many beatings, he couldn't even keep count of them. Stoned, whipped, beaten with rods, shipwrecked. Not once, not twice, but thrice. That's crazy. Don't get on a boat with Paul. A whole night and day spent adrift in the middle of the sea. And I can imagine few things more terrifying than just being adrift in the middle of the sea. Sleepless nights, often without food, freezing, often near death. That's the life experience of the man penning these words. I have learned to be content in all of that. And who has also penned the words, the command of 317. Brothers, join in imitating me. And the command of 4.9, practice these things. What things? The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Including this thing. Including contentment. Christian, you are commanded to be content. To be satisfied. As I know how crazy that sounds and how difficult this is. We find ourselves in a culture that exists to drive us to discontentment. The whole advertising industry exists to make you discontent so that you will believe you need and then buy whatever it is that you are peddling. You mean in the third iPhone, there's a third little lens thing, camera thing that makes it a little bit better? I definitely need that, right? The whole thing exists to build within you discontentment. Our whole economic system plays a role in that. Our system, it's not that great. It's better than every other system that anyone has ever been able to come up with. Um, But the whole thing still, to some degree, plays upon this. It creates discontentment. It creates desire more, 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 more. Social media exists to make you discontent. You're constantly being bombarded with ads that tell you you're not good enough until you have this thing, that you're not beautiful enough until you look this way. And it sure seems that all your friends have this thing and look this way, so you are discontent. Discontentment reigns. I read, I stayed up late last night finishing, I read this week, Andre Agassi's auto, there's that word again, self, Biography. Andre Agassi, the great, he was the great tennis player, he and Sampras, when I was growing up. I loved tennis because of Agassi and Sampras. Uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, but he was a very tortured and discontented man. 
He drives and he drives and he drives. He finally wins his first Grand Slam, which is Wimbledon. And then he writes this. I'm supposed to be a different person now that I've won a slam. Everyone says so, but I don't feel that Wimbledon has changed me. I feel, in fact, as if I've been let in on a dirty little secret. Winning changes nothing. Now that I've won a slam, I know something that very few people on earth are permitted to know. A win doesn't feel nearly as good as a loss feels bad, and the good feeling doesn't last nearly as long as the bad, not even close. He keeps driving, he keeps pushing, he finally climbs to the number one spot and knocks off his nemesis, Pete Sampras. Sampras was always the better player and just drove Agassi crazy. But he finally, at this one point, I think twice in his career, he got to number one. The first time he, he builds a whole year, he's going to knock off Sampras. He does it and he writes, I did it. I'm the number one tennis player on earth. And yet I feel empty. If being number one feels empty, unsatisfying, what's even the point. It's, it's discontentment. He was the greatest, second greatest, and he was the most discontent. We are surrounded by discontentment. Our whole world is about discontentment. We live in a culture that seeks to build within you and to drive you towards that discontentment more and more and more. So I get how countercultural this is, but I also want to be clear because Paul is clear that this is a commandment. This is not optional. Christianity is contentment. Okay, so great. How? We live in a culture of discontentment. Maybe many of us right now are experiencing discontentment. Our daydreams for something else demonstrate that, reveals what it is. So what then is the secret of contentment? Let's go to point number three. Why am I calling it the secret of contentment? Well, that's, that's what Paul calls it. Now, probably the most famous book on contentment is titled the, the Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs, Puritan, almost 400 years ago. He was one of the authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's where we get our 1689 London Baptist Confession from. And he was one of like the five guys there who wasn't a Presbyterian. He was a Congregationalist. So we owe a lot to this guy. He actually died by falling off of his horse coming home from the Westminster Assembly. It's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, but he had written this book, his most famous, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And that title in and of itself is important and revealing. He doesn't call it something like the common, I couldn't think of a J, like the common genes of Christian contentment, right? Everyone has genes. They're, they're common. Uh, everybody's got them. It's easy to get them. But Burroughs understands that Christian contentment is both rare and it is of great value. So he calls it a rare jewel. So that tells us that this doesn't come easily. That tells us that this is not automatic. And that's why Paul says twice in verse 11 and verse 12 that this is something that he has learned. And we saw last week that the learn of verse 11 is the same learn as verse 9. It's the word of discipleship. But the learn of verse 12 is not the same word of verse 9 and 11. It's a different word entirely. Uh, this is why verse 12 says, I have learned the secret 
And so throughout the book and the Puritans, they, they translated this word mystery. They talked about the mystery of contentment because the word learned there in verse 12 is literally a verb form of the word mystery. It means to be initiated into. It means to be let in on the secret. So according to the title of this book, this is something that's rare. It's something that must be learned. It's a secret. It's a mystery. So we'll start off by understanding that it's not an easy thing. If you are not currently content with your contentment, do not despair. That's why we have this text. That's why God has given us this word that we may learn from Paul this great secret, that we too may find this great rare jewel, that we may find satisfaction. How? Well, I think there are four things that he gives us in these passages, kind of four general things that I want to pull out uh, for the rest of our time. I think that Paul is telling us that you find contentment through the people of God, then through the providence of God, then through the power of God, and finally, the presence of God. People, providence, power, presence. We'll go through these quickly. The first is the people of God. Find contentment through the people of God. Look at verse 10 now. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So you're going to remember Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. They're in Philippi in Greece. Remember that prison back then is actually more like house arrest. He's chained to a Roman guard at all times. But prisons back then didn't feed you. They didn't provide for your daily needs. So you were responsible for that yourself. So Paul needs food and money. The Philippian church has provided that food and money. So this letter is in part sent back to them as a, as a thank you to them for their help. And we'll look at this in more detail next time when we get to verse 14. But for now, I want you to notice that this is our last use of the word rejoice in this letter that has been all about joy. And he uses his last use of the word rejoice in the context of concern for and of others. You were indeed concerned for me. And this is, again, that Greek word that actually we keep coming back to over and over again, the word for think, phroneo. It literally says, you were thinking of me, you were minding me. So it's, again, it's 2 verse 2. He, 2 2 runs through this whole letter. In 2 2, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. In 4.10, Paul is greatly rejoicing because they are minding him. They are thinking of him, which leads then to their acting on it. They're caring for him. They're providing for his needs. Maybe, in part, your struggle to find satisfaction is because your main minding, your chief concern, is yourself. What John Newton frequently writes about in his letters as that monster self. That monster that he says has as many heads as Hydra, as many lives as a cat. He goes on and writes, It's more than 25 years since it was fast nailed to the cross, but alas, it is alive, still mixing with and spoiling everything that I do. Maybe all you keep doing is focusing on and feeding that monster self, that sinful self of the flesh that is never satisfied, satisfied that always says, me, 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 more, more, more. So the first step is to take the focus off of that sinful self. How? I wish we had just a whole lot more time and I would just read to you 
Burroughs' book because it's so good. Go find it and read chapter 5 on how Christ teaches uh, contentment. And he starts off with the lesson of self-denial, which is so relevant uh, to the culture that we find ourselves in. Paul uh, Burroughs says that the first lesson is that you must learn to deny yourself. And then in perfect Puritan fashion, he gives like 100 subpoints to explain uh, what that means. He says, first, you must learn that you are nothing. I love that because that just, doesn't that just sound so negative to our culturally conditioned, positive, self-esteem obsessed ears? He starts off by saying, you have to realize that you're nothing. And then number two, you have to realize that you deserve nothing. And then number three, you have to realize that you can do nothing. And then number four, you have to realize that apart from the grace of God, you can't even receive Anything, And he just unpacks point after point after point to make it clear, hey, by the way, remember that you're nothing. And if we could really understand the depth of our sinfulness, we just wouldn't struggle so much with contentment. I know that my problem in part is that I very much think that I am something. I very much uh, think that I deserve something. And so when I don't get that something, then I'm discontent and upset. And I very much think that I can do something, anything, maybe. And so we just end up focusing more and more and more on ourselves. But you are not created to find satisfaction in yourself. You are not created to live for yourself. It's not part of your design. It's not what God made you for. He made you for him. He made you for others. And so when you live in opposition to your design, listening to and following the world and its encouragement to, to love yourself and to follow your heart and to be yourself and to serve yourself, you're going to find only discontentment. Which is why we need to be very careful about jumping on board, kind of with the cultural narrative. That, right, you just need to be you, right? You just need to express yourself. You just need to follow your heart, and you declare and decide who you are. Paul's saying, no, that focus on self and that obsession with self-expression is exactly the opposite. And it's not where you're going to find satisfaction, because it's not what you were created for. So the first secret to contentment is to seek that contentment not inside of yourself, but outside of yourself. And we're getting there. We know that that can only ultimately come from the vertical other. Um, but that vertical other designed you to find great joy in living for and, with, and for the good of others. And so Paul rejoices for the final time in the context of the care of others. But look at what he says. Some people think Paul is a real jerk for this. Look at the beginning of verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Kind of, thanks, but hey, no thanks, really. Hey, thanks, but just to be clear, I didn't really need that, by the way. Uh, so thanks a lot, but I didn't, I'm okay. Uh, I'm good. Is that what he's doing? Is Paul being ungrateful? What? Not at all. Peek ahead, actually. Let's cheat ahead. Look at verse 17. Look real quick at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And do you see what he's saying there? He's not rejoicing because their gift is first and foremost a blessing to him. And of course it is. But that's not his main concern. He's rejoicing because their gift to him is actually a blessing to them. He knows that it truly is better to give than to receive. He's rejoicing at the evidence of God's grace in their lives, in their sacrificial giving, which he knows will ultimately be even more of a blessing to them. 
So Paul, in prison, being a gift, is still primarily focused on the good of others. And it's in that that he greatly rejoices. So you find contentment through the people of God. Your problem is that you are too focused on yourself. That's just what sin is. So the first step, by the grace of God, is forcing yourself to begin that outward turn, to take practical steps to seek the good of others and to serve them and then wait for the contentment and the joy to follow. It starts with the people of God. Be concerned about others. Call them. Ask them how they're doing. Get to know them. Get to know their problems, and your problems will all of a sudden maybe seem a little bit less significant. Ask how you can help them with their problems, and then maybe all of a sudden yours won't seem like such a big deal. It starts with this other focus on God's people. We have been given this. We have been given each other as a gift. Use it. Uh, Contentment is found in the people of God. Number two, the secret of contentment is the providence of God. And we've talked about this a bunch lately, so we don't have to um, really get into it in the same detail. But you desperately need this. You cannot be content without a robust understanding of and trust in the providence of God. What is that again? Remember, the word literally means foreseeing. But since we're talking about God, his foreseeing is also his foredoing. Chapter 5 of the 1689 says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. Nothing happens to anyone by chance or outside of God's providence. So God's providence is simply his upholding and his sustaining of all things and his governing and directing and ordering of all things. There is no such chance. There is no such thing in the biblical worldview as chance or as luck or as fate. There is God and he is sovereign and he decides and he decrees everything that is to happen. And then he perfectly executes and carries out those decrees through his providence. And if that's true, which again, scripture is clear. We've walked through it in detail, but that has to be true. If that's true, that means that circumstances, all circumstances, ultimately come from God. As Burroughs puts it, there is nothing that befalls you that is not ultimately from the hand of God. His providence is behind every particular happening from morning to every night, every day. Understanding that it is all from God is a great help in contentment. Look at verse 12. Look at 12. How did Paul learn to be content in whatever situation? Well, by experiencing every situation. He learned it through his circumstances. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Circumstances, both good and bad. Paul lists two sets, low, hunger, need, then abound, plenty, abundance. It is through our circumstances, through those circumstances, that Paul has learned to be Content. He has learned to trust in and rest in the providence of God. And that's the secret of contentment. Here's a fun, simple definition that's not helpful. We need to get back to our definition. Uh, contentment is satisfaction. Now we're seeing that it's satisfaction in all circumstances. 
So, or you could say that contentment is calm consent to circumstances. All circumstances. It is calm content to circumstances because God is sovereign and he is in control of those circumstances and he is good in those circumstances. Or let's just finally get to Burroughs' definition because it's the best one. Here's how he defines Christian contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It is this inward frame of spirit that rests in, submits to, and delights in God's providence, is what he's saying. Contentment is an inward thing, and it's not just submitting to your circumstances, it's delighting in them, in God's plan, his fatherly plan. Like when I'm being a good father, I'm only seeking the good of my daughters. God is a perfect father, and so he always and only seeks the good of his children in everything that he does. This is what you need to hear. You are discontent, and you blame that discontentment on some circumstance. That's what we all do. You're discontent, and you blame it on a circumstance. Bad boss, bad spouse, no money, no spouse. Whatever your frustrating circumstance is right now, you are thinking, there is this bad thing. I do not like this bad thing. If this bad thing changes, then I will be glad. You believe that a change in your circumstances will bring you contentment. But if this definition of contentment is true, then that is a lie. And it won't bring you contentment. Because that's not Christian contentment. Like joy, true contentment is entirely circumstance independent. Paul learned that he could be content in good circumstances and bad circumstances. In much and in little. You have got to fight to the end and resist the lie that this world can satisfy you and that you will be content if you get that thing, that thing that you're daydreaming about, that you're convinced that if you get it, things will be better and you'll now be content. That's not how it works. If you get that job change, it won't change your heart. If you get that relationship, uh, it won't change your heart. If you get more money, it won't change your heart. Circumstances don't Change it. Don't affect it. Contentment is not found in your circumstances. Our old pastor in North Carolina used to always say, kind of in this point, he would always say, uh, lonely single people just become lonely married people. Right? When we're single, we think like, okay, if we get married, we'll be good and everything will be fine. And his point is, it's not the circumstances that changes it. That's not what we're talking about. And if that's true, uh, that means that we've got to find contentment somewhere else and in something else. And now listen, none of this means that we cannot ever seek to change our circumstances. It doesn't mean that there's not a godly way to go about seeking change or trying to improve our circumstances. That's not wrong. But it is wrong to put our heart and our hope in our circumstances. It is wrong to tie our joy and our contentment to our circumstances. A change in circumstances won't result in a change in contentment. So contentment starts with recognizing that your circumstances are not your central problem, but you are. Whatever is outside of you is not your central problem. It's what is inside of you. 
Right? My problem is not that we're not overflowing and bursting with numbers. My problem is my sinful heart that finds fulfillment and identity and success in those numbers. See, it's not the external circumstances. It's me. It's my own problem. Right? So there is, in a sense, a place to be discontent. A be discontent with yourself. A holy discontentment with self is the ground and the starting place of true contentment. So first, stop seeking to find contentment in better circumstances and then fight to remember that whatever circumstances you currently find yourself in, they come from the hand of God. You are in your circumstances by divine appointment for a reason. And you are commanded in the 10th commandment and by Paul's example to find contentment in those current circumstances, whatever they are, trusting that God is good and is working all things together for your ultimate good. So you need to rejoice and rest in the providence of God to be content. He's got you where he wants you. He's got you there for a reason. He's doing something. He only does good things. So trust him. Listen to this. I hope this is clear reading it. This is one of my favorite quotes of all time. This is John Flavel, another old guy. But listen to what he writes here. He says, If you could but see how God, in his secret counsel, has exactly laid out the whole plan of your life and your salvation, even to the smallest detail and circumstance, could you but uh, discern the beautiful harmony of his workings, their mutual relations together with the respect that they will all have and lead to the last end? Had you, with that information, the liberty, the freedom to make your own choice, you would, of all circumstances in the world, choose the ones in which you are in right now. Do you follow that? Because it is deeply profound. Flavel says that if you could see everything that God sees, if you could see it from his perfectly omniscient and perfectly good perspective, if you could see everything that he's doing and connecting and all the threads and what he's working towards, if you could see it from his perspective, you'd pick the exact circumstances you find yourself in right now. Because they're the exact circumstances that God picked for you right now. And he is perfectly wise and he is perfectly good. We just don't believe that. And we so quickly forget it. He is good, and he is good, and he is good, and he only does good for his people. So we have to rest in his good and gracious providence. I have to rest in his good and gracious providence. Trust him. Right? The secret of contentment is the good and gracious providence of God. Number three, the secret of contentment is the power of God. Look at verse 13. You know it. You probably got it memorized. You're an athlete. You have it memorized probably. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't have time to make fun of Steph Curry or I don't have time to make fun of Tim Debo who think that this verse means they can shoot threes and, and throw touchdowns. Apparently for Tebow, this verse didn't mean that he could make it as an NFL quarterback. Um, but that's cause a joke. Oh, man. But that's because this verse has nothing to do with that. This verse has nothing to do with that. Surely we know by now that this verse does not mean that you can do whatever you put your mind to. It does not mean that you can be or do anything that you want. No, it means that you can do verse 12. 
Verse 13 means that you can do verse 12. The all things uh, are verse 12. We can be content in all circumstances, good and bad. How? Through him who strengthens me. It's that word dunamis, power. And it's got a prefix on it, in. In front, it literally means empowered. It means to impart power, to put power in, to fill with power. You need the power and the grace of God to be content. Don't seek to find it in yourself. As we've seen, the focus on self leads only to deadly discontentment. That means that we need to shift the focus outside of ourselves. That means we need God's help. We need his power. And so that means if you are discontent, it starts by owning and confessing that discontentment to God. It starts with prayer. It starts with asking him to make you content and to give you this power. It starts with remembering 1-6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That completion includes contentment. It starts with remembering 2.13 that you do need to work out your own salvation. Live it out, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remembering 1 Corinthians 15.10 that it is by the grace of God that you are who you are. So work harder than anyone, though it is not you, but the grace of God that is with you. Remembering Colossians 1.29 that you are to toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within you. Remember 2 Peter 1, 3, that his divine power has granted you, not some things, his divine power has granted you all things that pertain to life and godliness. That all things includes your contentment. You have everything that you need to be content. You have the power to be content, and that is because ultimately you have is the last and obvious but most important secret of contentment. It is the person. It is the presence of God. You can do all of those things. You can be content through him. It's through him. That's the secret. Christ is the secret. And it's this verse, verse 13, that explains what Paul means by content in verse 11. Verse 13 transforms the stoic concept of self-sufficiency into Christ-sufficiency. Paul is satisfied not in self, but in Christ. Contentment is Christ-satisfaction. And so in a sense, in an important sense, Paul is self-sufficient. Because now in Christ, he is, verse 12, completely independent of circumstances for his contentment. He needs nothing else outside of himself now that Christ is in him to be content. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's the secret of contentment right there. Christ loves you, and Christ gave himself for you. You know how honoring it is when a person that you value or look up to makes a big sacrifice for you? You know how much that means uh, for you when someone goes out of their way and does something big and, and sacrifices to demonstrate how much they care? Like, this is the ultimate demonstration of that. Christ gave himself up for you. Christ is 
in you. That's why, just like true joy is gospel-generated joy, true contentment is gospel-generated contentment. It is Christ-generated contentment, which means that there is no contentment to be found outside of Christ. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. We were made to find satisfaction only in him, which means that if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to hear that you can only find contentment in Christ. You are enslaved to your sin in your love and in your focus on yourself. The wages of that sin is death. Christ came for that very reason. Christ came to take that death, to die in the place of sinners, to pay the penalty that we deserved for that sin. Christ died to save Sinners like me. That's the gospel. And that's the only way that we can be forgiven and that we can be right with God. This, this infinitely wonderful display of God's love is what saves us and sets us free. So if you do not know that, you do not know him, he calls you at the beginning of his ministry. He says, repent and believe. He says, come to me. Leave the sin. Leave yourself. Come to me and I will give you rest. Man, come, I would love to talk to you about that if you have questions about that. But that also then means that, Christian, if you are struggling to be content, you need to know and that God is with you and that he is for you. You need to go back to verse 9 and the promise of the presence of the God of peace. You need to go back to the gospel and remind yourself of what you really deserved for your sin. It's, it's hard to be discontent when you remember and actually believe that what you really deserve is hell. If we actually believe that, we would never be discontent. That whatever difficult circumstance you're in right now, if it's better than hell, then it's better than you deserve. But that in Christ, we get infinitely better than we deserve. Because we get, we get him. But we don't not just get hell, we get heaven. And he is heaven. He is everything. So remember, come to him as we've seen in the last couple of weeks through his word, through meditation, through prayer. Delight in the one who has delighted in you. Love the one who has loved you at the expense of his own life. Stop obsessing over self and circumstances and turn your attention to him. You will only find true contentment, true satisfaction in Christ himself. I'll close with, we read Hebrews 13 uh, for our scripture reading. It's a wonderful connection of, of these two points that we've been looking at. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me. Be content. Why? Because he has promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with that. Be content with him. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Father, it's so much easier to preach and to hear it than it is to live it and to do it. Father, we struggle with contentment. Uh, we know that discontentment is wrong. We know that it's a sin. Father, help us. Uh, forgive us. We thank you that you are 
gracious and kind uh, to forget us, forgive us. We thank you uh, that you have already uh, paid for the sin of our discontentment uh, through the death of Jesus Christ and our place. Father, help us not just to confess with our lips uh, that Jesus is Lord and that he, that he died and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins, but Father, help us to cherish that truth. Help us to live in light of the implications of that truth, that we are so loved in you that you sent your own Son to save us from ourselves and, and from our sin. Father, breed within us great delight in that truth. Father, forgive us for how satisfied we get with silly and foolish things, uh, the, the things of this world uh, that we know don't ever fulfill and that don't ever satisfy us, and so we just need more and more. Father, turn us away from those things with that disappointment and help us to seek and find uh, true contentment only in your Son, uh, Jesus Christ. Father, we have now heard your word. I have now preached your word. Father, now we ask for you to help us. Father, help us to be uh, doers of the word and not hearers only. Father, convince us uh, of the true contentment that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Encourage our hearts. Father, encourage us with your presence and with your goodness and with your kindness. Father, we thank you for loving us. Father, help us to love you and help us to be uh, content in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. We ask and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.